The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Paragene Technologies. And I'm Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. We're very happy today to have Bill Elm with us. Bill is the founder, president, and CSC fellow at Resilient Cognitive Solutions. Bill's military career includes an ROTC commission in 1977 from Carnegie Mellon University as a distinguished military graduate with further military education, including airborne ranger, military intelligence officer, basic and advanced courses, CAS3, and command and general staff college. He's held leadership positions up to MI battalion command, brigade S3, as well as intelligence staff officer positions at various levels up to joint command receiving numerous decorations and awards, including the Meritorious Service Medal. His military career spanned 27 years of active and reserve service, retiring as a Lieutenant Colonel, Military Intelligence in 2004. Bill's civilian career began as a cognitive systems engineer designing advanced control systems for commercial nuclear power plants, including an alarm management system that still defines the state of the art. He's one of the longest practicing cognitive systems engineers, combining over 34 years of applied CSE experience in domains ranging from process control to national intelligence. Currently, he's focused on advanced decision support using big data analytics to team effectively with corresponding advances in decision-making tradecraft. Thanks again for joining us, Bill, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian, and good morning to you and Laura. So I want to um, go a bit back over uh, that bio I just read. You're, you're one of the few uh, podcast guests we've had who who have sort of these dual careers. You bring real world experience to your research and development roles. So I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through how your dual career path developed and, and how you came to um, to found resilience. Oh, it, it, it's way too long a, a, a winding a, a journey, but um, as as a friend of mine was inducted into the the Ranger Hall of Fame recently, and and he described uh, he described that process as a crucible, and I, I came to realize that was sort of a a crucible in my life that sort of changed my perspective on what's possible and what's impossible, and um, sort of been a challenge seeker ever since. Um, so as I got off active duty and and went reserve and and went looking for a civilian career after. Uh, my bachelor's and master's at CMU, and then later going back again. Um, the and I and I walked into Westinghouse as they were they were uh, reacting to Three Mile Island and trying to uh, imagine what a different kind of control room would look like, uh, since the the uh, industry was not satisfied with basically the decision making of that of that crew. Um, and I, I asked the key question, well, how, how do you, how are you going to do that? What process are you going to use to do that? Uh, and I'll never forget the engineering manager looked at me and said, well, that's the first thing we have to figure out is how to do this stuff. And then we're going to do it uh, for an advanced control room. Uh, and that, that sounded like a hard challenge. So I signed up right there. Um, and that was, that was a year before Dave Woods wrote the, uh, the paper that coined the name cognitive systems engineering. So I've been doing it sort of a year longer than it's been a named field. Um, and I, I got introduced recently as, you know, uh, fractions of a century. So I've, I've kind of, my career has now changed into a whole different unit of measure and 
I'm, I'm usually the old guy in the room. So, uh, and that it's, it, it has been a challenge and it's just been sort of sparking my curiosity ever since. And, uh, and I can't put it down. So, um, evolved through a series of, uh, moves and acquisitions and, and went to work for, a. Uh, one of the original AI companies here in town, a CMU spinoff, and that went public. I bought and sold and bought and sold, um, ended up as a cognitive systems engineering center of excellence and a big defense contractor after they bought and sold each other. Uh, we spun the company out um, in 2007 when I had a chance to do that um, to focus exclusively, to no longer be a small center of excellence in a huge organization, but in fact, to have an exquisitely honed organization dedicated only to this. So we built a company from the ground up to be a cognitive systems engineering operation. The facilities built that way, the recruiting programs built that way. Uh, the accounting system is built as a cognitive systems engineering organization. Hmm. Yeah, I want to hear a lot more about uh, resilient cognitive solutions, but um, to, to go back, making a jump, I that that's a pun, I guess, from from <laughs> Ranger to uh, Ranger and Intel to nuclear engineering. Can can you kind of talk us through uh, what that was like for you to make that big leap between domains? Oh well, in in, in fact, I'll I'll go the other way and say um, that that's where I, I I first realized that the the issues of cognitive systems engineering are in fact domain independent. Um, the the intelligence community in general has been um, has recognized the critical nature of human decision-making as, as core to the business, right? An intelligence analyst is a, is a, is a knowledge worker, is a, is a thought, uh, engine, uh, and getting those decisions right. And, and being a high performance, they use the term analytic rigor, a rigorous, uh, agent, uh, is critical. So they've recognized that. And then since that's what we were doing for these nuclear, uh, power plant operators making decisions. Now, in that case, it was process control decisions, but it was all cognitive systems, joint cognitive systems kinds of stuff. So um, over my career, it was about both performing uh, as a as an intelligence operator, but also then training, uh, training the unit to be an effective decision support. And in a sense, that's what the intelligence community is. It's a human decision support system. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's trying to advise the decision makers uh, on and provide that those key information resources um, so that those those action uh, decision makers can make their action decisions or operational decisions. So it's to me, it's the same. It's not different at all. Right. All right. I'll I'll, I'll buy that a bit. But, but also <laughs> also having worked in both domains, uh, the, the sheer technical knowledge that is required to even understand what's going on in a nuclear uh, plant control room uh, is is complex to say it uh, gently um, I'm wondering if um, if you can think back to those early days uh, were there things that you discovered kind of about your own work or ways to quickly get up speed uh, up to speed uh, on what was because it's one thing to say it's about process control but you got to wade through a lot of technical stuff just to get to the process i'm just wondering if you had any lessons that you recall learning about how to how to quickly jump into that domain and make a difference well i i could i could maybe share a war story we in a, in a slightly different example we were doing some work with the canadian navy uh, on a command and control system for them 
uh, and I had uh, I had a, a Navy Canadian Navy Admiral grab me, drag me out in the hall, and and ask how could an, uh, an RCS cognitive systems engineer possibly know that much about naval command and control? Mm-hmm. She's only been out of school for two years. Right. And and that's exactly to me, that's an indicator that our that our upfront, the upfront end of our engineering methodology, where we just as you described, we sort of peel back that the domain specific issues to really fundamentally understand that decision making basis that and, and we do that with a variant of a cognitive work analysis, uh, as, as you know, um, and that is core to everything that stands on top of that. Our designs, our testing, um, in, in fact, our, our knowledge elicitation downstream of that is all built on that, on that foundation of that core understanding of the cognitive side of that work domain. So uh, when, that, when that admiral dragged me out in the hall and was confused about how somebody so young could have uh, senior officer equivalent uh, mental model, if you want to kind of go toward mm-hmm. the, the whole CMAP thing again, uh, that to me was an endorsement that, um, that that front part of our process was working. We were getting to the right model. We understood it at a level that an expert recognized as a near expert equivalent uh, understanding. And that, so in a sense, it is part of, to me, part of the the fundamental work of a cognitive systems engineer is doing that upfront on a brand new domain, clean sheet of paper. I don't know anything about X. Let's go. Right. Well, that there had to be some trust there, though, from that admiral that that you were going to bring something, even if, even if they couldn't see it at the moment, that you were going to bring something of value. Uh, and that that is part of the part of the challenge of this business is it is relatively unconventional to to people that. Uh, have built systems a different way their entire career. The, the acquisition programs are not designed for cognitive systems engineering. The, you know, it, it, even, even agile software engineering in a sense is a completely different approach to how do you generate, how do you generate those profound ideas at the heart of a joint cognitive system? And we have a different way to do that. We find some people uh, will make that leap uh, after hearing about it, seeing examples and understanding it, they sign up. Other people, I find it takes a cathartic moment. So we had a we had a recent meeting with uh, the U.S. Navy after the McCain collision, uh, where I pointed out that basically their systems engineering process was lacking that cognitive systems engineering JCS insight up front, and that contributed to to the quote disconnect that they assess to be human error, which is which is typical. So they the ones and zeros all flowed adequately through the tech side, so it must not have been at fault, the people in front of it take the blame. Uh, to us, it's a failed joint cognitive system uh, that, that doesn't have that integrated perspective from the start. Right. All right. So so getting back to uh, to how you set up shop here, um, tell us about uh, the, the, the sort of processes that you've put in place to ensure that um, uh, resilient cognitive solutions uh, remains true to its core, and I'm particularly interested in that accounting piece. So, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, to tell us how you have, tell us how you've set up so that you can remain true to your principles. Uh, well, the the there's a there's a book that uh, that resonated with me. The if I get the title right, the discipline of market leadership, uh, and uh, in the in the book, it, it really says as you as you set up an organization, you have to decide what you want to be. Uh, so do you want to be kind of a turnkey 
a one-stop shop? Do you want to be a low-cost provider? What do you want to be? Uh, and, and in fact, um, when I set up uh, RCS, we wanted to be um, one of the world's best practitioners of cognitive systems engineering, build fundamentally, profoundly different cognitive affordances that, that just fight uh, elegantly well. And with that, with that focus now, so, so again, as a small organization, uh, we know who to blame if it comes off the rails, me. Uh, so that ev everybody is introduced to that. In fact, even during the recruiting process or even dur during our intern process, interns are, are told that right up front. If it doesn't have a cognitive basis, we're not doing it. Uh, we turn away work uh, where the, the customer is not fundamentally interested in a uh, in, in making a difference in a in a uh, in the cut in the decision effectiveness of their of their fight, and I've I've kind of a, a old school word Rolodex. I have a I have a <laughs> a contact list full of uh, full of other companies I refer folks to when they when they insist they just need a mobile app. Okay, if 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 you just want a mobile app, we'll send you to a mobile app company. If you want a mobile app that is a true cognitive affordance, you're at the right place. Well, those sound like interesting conversations. Um, what? Uh, so I, I understand someone comes to you and looks for a solution up front, but um, can you give us uh, maybe another war story where you've sort of helped bring someone around uh, who may have started with that approach, but you brought them around to the focus on cognition? Well, sure. So. Um... In that sort of uh, smoke jumper kind of role, we get uh, we get asked into programs that are maybe mature, late phase programs, projects, research efforts, where they they find that they are struggling uh, at the end. We we got called into one where they had they had made a major investment in uh, AI ML computer vision analytics, with the typical assumption that this AI agent was going to replace person X on the crew. Um, and that's typically how the kind of uh, ROI uh, case is made. We have a four-person team. We're going to make AI do person two's job. Now we have a three-person team, save a lot of money, pays for the AI. Classic, um, classic way the program gets justified and paid for, um, but they don't really understand what they've done when they try to do human role replacement with an AI agent that is, that is focused on sort of one specific thing. So object detection in an image is not just, is not everything a human does as a member of a, a, an imagery processing team. Uh, they call it a process exploitation and dissemination of PED cell uh, for uh, full motion video. And they, they just don't realize what they've, what they've done when they, when they take a human role and give it to a vision analytic. So they had done that. So they had built all this, it spent a lot of money on uh, very good performance from object detection, computer vision analytics, but the analyst wouldn't use it, couldn't use it, and it was not being adopted. It wasn't having the, the, the work benefit, the mission benefit that they, that they claimed. And they didn't understand why. It was working fine. All the tech scores were fine. All the system testing was fine. Why didn't it work? So uh, they reached out to us. Somebody, somebody had my business card and gave it to somebody else and gave it to somebody else. So they called, um, and we walked in and basically inverted the entire model. Uh, so no longer was it these are the AI uh, detections. Uh, you, the human analyst, go use them and be a better analyst. We inverted the whole thing, embedded those object detections as sort of a deeply embedded service 
within a larger joint cognitive system design concept, and suddenly it worked profoundly different. The analysts were able to, uh, in a sense, without realizing that it was AI under the hood, uh, without sort of directly feeling the agent, uh, they were supported in their core decision-making in a, in a profoundly different way. Hey, Bill, I wanted to circle back uh, when you were talking about being uh, at Westinghouse early in your career as, um, you know, and this was an exciting time. Dave Woods, Emily Roth, you, all these, you know, now legendary figures um, were early in their careers and um, working on this really important problem and figuring out a process and what to call it and, and all of that. And I just, I wondered if you could tell us more about, you know, being one of the people there as, as cognitive systems engineering was being envisioned and articulated and put into practice all at the same time. Oh, it was, uh, it was, it was a ton of fun and it was, it was hard and it was fast paced kind of all at the same time. So, and anybody that knows Dave Woods, uh, he, he, he generates ideas faster than you can write them down. So uh, he's, he, he was literally this sort of, you know, CSE idea engine on one hand and then applying it into this advanced control room project specifically on the other hand and back and forth and back and forth between, well, if we did it this way, it'd look like this. Uh, well, let's say if we did it this other way, it would look like this. So there was, there was just tons of, of, of generative uh, process thoughts and also then results uh, coming out the other side. V very cool stuff. Uh, and, and in fact, that same, that engineering basis that we came up with, uh, that approach for how to do it as an engineering discipline, not as, not really as just a research effort, but how do you do cognitive systems engineering with sort of a capital E as an engineering practice where you have the, um, the audit, uh, the audit trail, the repeatability, the traceability that you need, uh, to, to stand up in a, in a systems engineering world with the same level of engineering rigor informed by the, the cognitive science difference uh, integrated together. Every meeting with Dave was a brain full. Uh, the, the meeting would end when my head couldn't hold anymore. <laughs> and we had to kind of then uh, digest and do something with it. So uh, so one one thing I'm, I'm, I'm curious about is, is like you mentioned one of the um, big contributions was really about alarm management in nuclear power at that time. And, and so I wonder, is there a, a key insight or something that seemed revolutionary then that maybe now is kind of ordinary um, that you could um, share with us as, as you think about that that early work you were doing? Well, I, I'd almost say the reverse. The, the key insights of what we, what we worked on, whatever year that was, 86 maybe, right in there, is, is really, uh, is true today and is being missed today. So the, the, the short version of it is really the cocktail party effect, if you want to sort of just use that, that typical teaching point, where you have to recognize that the alarm system is really a cognitive affordance helping you to, helping the users, plural, to focus their attention where their work is needed right now. So it becomes uh, this, this as, as Herb, Herb Simon said, uh, human attention is the most precious resource. So how do you help a human focus their attention that you innately do perceptually in your, in your real world, in your, in your physical world every day? How do you do that in these virtual digital environments that we're building? 
in a non-intrusive, elegant way. So if you're consuming somebody's attention with a loud alarm noise or a scrolling list of alert messages they have to read, you've consumed their attention to invite them to divert their attention from the work they're doing. So you get this catch-22 effect if you treat the alarm system as a sort of a data output thread and that's common today. I will build an AI agent. It will detect this signature. When it detects the signature, it will compose this message. It will then send this message to your email, your cell phone, uh, and maybe go uh, text to speech and, and speak it to you through your through your uh, your Google device or Alexa or whatever. Um, but you've interrupted the person by doing that. The the, the practice in the nuclear days was was one of these incredibly loud klaxons that goes off uh, to make sure that, that nobody's sleeping through the alarm. And, and the, the, the real indicator, there's a, there's a, a now to me, famous photograph of, uh, there's a, an acknowledge button the operators had to press to silence that audible attention getter. Um, and it was going off so fast during Three Mile Island, the crew couldn't talk to each other. It was, it was basically constantly on during that alarm avalanche um, of it was like 3,600 alarms per per minute, uh, just pouring in, um, and they pushed the button in and stuck a penny in it um, to to keep the button in, so the audible alarm wouldn't keep going off, um, so they could talk and actually work the problem. So there's a case of where the the attention support was so disruptive that that it was defeating its intent to be an attention manager. So you have to build this very exquisite, elegant um, sort of whisper kind of an effect that just is perceptually uh, effortless in terms of inviting the person to change their focus, their attention focus or not, without consuming their attention to manage their attention. But, but the current state of the practice is my AI agents, many of them, lots of them, huge numbers of them are generating these huge volume of alert messages and scrolling them up the screen and then you write a procedure that says the user must read and acknowledge and react to every one of the alert messages because they are anomaly indications. Yeah, no, this is this is I'm nodding right along. I mean, I think we're seeing this in healthcare, like in many domains, there are the yep. this yep. approach to and, and it's the human's job to then sort through which are relevant and which are not. Yep. So so what we're finding is you now have in, in the in the world of big data, you have uh, humans who can't possibly process all the data in the big data. So now you overlay a, a layer of AI agents who are grinding on that data and keeping up and are scalable and all that, generating a massive volume of AI alert messages coming out of the AI agents. So you've got a data overloaded user now facing alert message avalanche on top of that. So you've you've I don't know you've kind of buried them twice right. by by this sort of this sort of single minded. If I can generate a message, the human will do the rest. And often the alert messages are are cryptic, so it's it's hard to sort them out. Yes. Uh, so that that gets into a bit of the craft of how do you how do you make a uh, an anomaly indicator of any kind of message or whatever, how do you make it informative? So treating it as an information resource, not just treating it as, uh, I mean, the extreme case is the big red uh, group alarm light, the master caution light, uh, like in uh, the Apollo spacecraft, for example, you just get a big red light on the uh, on the avionics panel, says something's broken, bang, and you get a big red light. That's the, that's the most extreme case of a data sparse uh, alarm indication. 
So, so the thread I'm hearing you pull, both in terms of your many your war stories, but also back to your marketing and, and business development approach, uh, is it sounds like there's a heck of a lot of engineers coming to you saying, we want to build this thing. And it sounds like uh, your conversation with them, um, <laughs> if it does move forward to work, and I understand some, <laughs> some of it doesn't uh, because you don't want to work with those people. Uh, but, but I imagine your, your education here uh, is about, okay, you want to build this thing. Let's, let's talk about um, uh, you know, the effects of you building that thing on the people that you're trying to build it for. Is that, is that part of your education you have to do uh, to those engineering types? The short answer, I guess, is yes. There are, there are lots of different uh, sort of customer stakeholder perspectives at that, at that table. So the engineering, the technical team is only one aspect of it. Hmm. The technical team stands up and says, I know how to build the tech. But you've got you've got kind of the management leadership perspective, the the economic buyer who's looking at cost. So there's all kinds of different customer perspectives that all have their point of view uh, to be satisfied in all this. But but underlying it all, Brian, you're exactly right. Uh, we had one of our new interns actually comment uh, to me the other day that that they they wanted to intern at RCS because they see this everywhere. So in a sense, every system that we build, every system is essentially a joint cognitive system. There's a human that rubs up against that and uses that technology to get real work done in the world. And it doesn't matter if it's your fitness watch on your arm or a control room for your process plant or AI engines to help your intelligence analysts or your business staff, you are building joint cognitive systems. If you stop your thinking at, can I get my software to run? Your system boundary is too small. You're building a computer system, not building a joint cognitive system. And everybody is always building a joint cognitive system, whether they recognize that or not. If they don't recognize it, then we've, we've actually been working lately, then, then they are, they're going to bake, we call them latent brittlenesses into that technology that are going to break under pressure at the worst possible moment. Uh, so you'll, you'll crash a ship uh, in the Straits of Singapore and kill sailors because the conditions aligned, the holes in the Swiss cheese aligned in just the right way. And suddenly a mistake was made, human failure, but it's really a fundamental latent brittleness in that joint cognitive system just waiting for the conditions to line up right, which is why all of these big accidents and, and events, you hear that cascade of dominoes uh, leading up to it. Somebody got up late, they were distracted, the coffee got spilled, somebody yelled their name. There's just this sequence of small little things that all happen to align together and suddenly the ship crashes. But it's predictable. If you, if you expand that boundary out, you can find those latent brittlenesses uh, and we are, we're in fact publishing what we call a brittleness finder for uh, system developers and customers to kind of self-diagnose a little bit. So if, if you are thinking about doing something, building a system in this way, be careful. Uh, you, you may be building a latent brittleness into your operational environment when you field it. So, I mean, the brittleness finder sounds like a, a really important contribution. I, I was going to say one of the things I admire about your approach is this acknowledgement that there's still skill involved. So even if you have really good methods, uh, CSE, designing the alerts so they are informative and they're not overwhelming, it's not straightforward. And and identifying the latent brittleness, there are some things to look for, but there's still some gotchas. And, and so um, some of this is an art and some of this is years of experience. Um, the perspective 
you know, gets you a long way, but it doesn't get you all the way there. And I, um, I just over the years, as I've heard you give talks. I feel like that's one of the things you often um, bring up is this is this is hard stuff and uh, and and they're challenging problems. Yes, I agree. And we, as I mentioned earlier, our recruiting process, we're looking for those folks that that sort of we call it the gleam that sort of get that twinkle in their eye about working on hard things that take a skill and a craft and a dedication. Uh, and if we can get that, if we see that gleam in that in that candidate, uh, we, we make them an RCS employee. Maybe it's a little quixotic of me, uh, but it is a it is a quest. But you do, in fairness, you do see it in other disciplines as well. You can go to an architect and get a very plain looking building, or you can go to a different architect and get a very elegant, sophisticated, functional design. You know, what, what separates the two? To some degree, it's their dedication to their craft and their skill. And, and again, we want RCS to be right up there as uh, in that in that frontier world leader position of, of cognitive systems engineering practice, which means we have to be good at our craft. So, so earlier, Bill, you mentioned Dave, uh, and I, I think you were referring to him as, as someone who's uh, who's inspired and influenced you. Uh, I wonder if you can um, tell us about a few other folks along the way that have uh, helped influence how you go about your work. Oh, interesting. So the, I, I'd have to give uh, Jens Rasmussen some credit in, in in the meetings and discussions with Jens, which were, were some of those sort of an initial ideas and principles all all churning around in that early work with Dave. Jens was a very down to earth kind of guy, and 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 he looked at me one day and said, "Look, just because I wrote the book doesn't mean it's right." He said, "It's a, I'm a control systems engineer trying to do this difficult thing. So if if there's a good idea in here, use it." If it's a bad idea, do something different. So I, I, I really enjoyed kind of talking to Jens in that in that fashion where it's not a tome. It's not something to be sort of dissected for every comma. It's it's an engineer trying to talk to engineers. And I, and I really enjoyed that interaction with him. But right up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat a little bit here, Brian. I'm going to hyphenate the next one. When I went back to, to CMU for some uh, PhD level AI studies, whatever year that was, and I got to work with her learn next to Herb Simon and Alan Newell, and I kind of hyphenate them because they, uh, they they traveled as a team and worked, complemented each other as a team. So just just to hear Alan Newell, and, and I, I would sneak into his postdoc seminars because they were really cool. And if he didn't take role, he wouldn't throw me out. It was really cool. And I, and I could hear him look at these postdoc AI researchers and, and try to get them to understand the fundamental technique that they were using and how it compares to this sort of, you know, biologically or human-inspired idea of how people think and 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 how they were trying to trying to riff off that as a as an AI technology, and again, a very realistic guy who understood the characteristics of what he was building and was looking for their strengths and weaknesses and how they could be applied, uh, and then Herb Simon from that other perspective understanding how humans solve puzzles and and think and what makes an expert an expert and the two of them talking together was just was inspirational uh, to to hear the two of them debate from the sort of their different perspectives the same thing that was a big deal i i really enjoyed that right yeah that sounds like a lot of uh lot of fun and, and inspiration. So, so, so where are you going next? Uh, you mentioned uh, your brittleness finder, which I agree with Laura. That sounds uh, really important. Where's RCS taking their research and applications next? Yeah, well, we're just constantly, uh, constantly on the hunt for hard problems to, to solve. And, and, and like I tell the crew, that's why I come to work every morning is because a new, a new hard problem walks in the door and 
you know, boy, that sounds like fun. Let's work on that one. So we're constantly looking for people that, that are that are struggling with a hard JCS issue and uh, and we can help. So that that really does keep it fresh. We, we're working on several projects at the same time and it's a constantly evolving portfolio of those. We finish one, start another one. Here we are, a whole new work domain. What are we going to do with this one? I don't know. Let's roll up our sleeves and figure it out. So it's all the way back to 1982 when I, when I signed up to that in a in the first nuclear control project, control room project, and, and here we are today doing the same thing. It walks in the door. I don't know what the answer is, but we're going to have a lot of fun finding out. Alongside that, we are uh, we are partnering now with Texas A&M to stand up a human machine ecosystem laboratory which is really dedicated to this idea of joint cognitive systems and cognitive systems engineering as the right way to be building sophisticated technical solutions. And it has a uh, it has a complementary arm of it, well, to apply experiential learning best practices for the human side with cognitive systems engineering best practices to build the cognitive affordance technical side. So we now have a different way to help humans work the advanced tradecraft of their they're now advanced cognitive affordances. So we're really excited about that. It's a, a brand new effort that I think is really going to scale the field a bit. And, I, and I'm really hoping that it sort of turns the, the systems engineering ship just a little bit uh, so this becomes more accepted uh, and more mainstream and, and less less of, a, a, of a, a niche kind of effort. That is exciting. So you said Texas A&M, is that who you're partnering with? Yes. And, and it, will there be a like physical location for this? Yes, it's... Uh, and COVID has kind of messed up some of that a little bit here uh, recently. But yes, it's on their their new Relis campus just outside College Station, Texas. So yes, there'll be physical. We're doing it this year virtual. We've got some some pilot studies uh, in, in, in the pipeline right now. So it's actually very exciting, very, very exciting time for cognitive systems engineering sort of next step up. Very cool. So one other exciting thing happening this year is that there's going to be a the natural decision-making uh, conference is being hosted um, in collaboration with the Resilience Engineering Association. Um, so I think these are, are, you know, communities that know each other and there's some overlap, but we're going to have a joint meeting this year. So we're really excited about that. And I note that the name of your company is Resilience. And I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about your perspective on, on resilience. Yeah, and it, it may be a bit of, of a different perspective on this. But our, our approach to that is if we can design and implement a, a well cognitive systems engineered joint cognitive system, the decision-making behavior is innately resilient. And I know it sounds a bit circular, but rather than try to stir in a half a cup of resilience into the effort, we think resilience is an emergent effect that comes from having a, we can use these words, having sort of a non-brittle JCS, if you want to kind of approach it that way. So if, if we can design and build a proper joint cognitive system, one of its innate properties is its resilience and robustness to novel situations and surprises and errors. So we, we don't focus on resiliency per se, we focus on effective decision support and resilience is the emergent effect. Uh, resilience is the emergent effect that results from that. It, it's a very similar discussion. People ask me about how do we fix cognitive bias, 
right? So when, when the buzz was everybody talking about cognitive biases, and my answer is we don't go in and, and put a Band-Aid on a bias or, or look for a remedy for a bias. We go in and fix the underlying joint cognitive systems, and then you don't see these symptoms that you describe as bias. So if we can get the decision-making to be right, it will be resilient. It will, it will not exhibit these biasing effects. It will, be, it will recover. It will heal. Uh, it, it, will, it will be a resilient joint cognitive system. I really like that, um, kind of flipping the question around, because it, it really doesn't make sense the other way. You can't change the way people think by you know, limiting their choices, or, uh, you, and right. you can't just give them a resiliency injection somehow. <laughs> or, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make exactly. sense to think of it that way. Right. right. So, so as an engineer, I'm always asking myself, how can we help? Right. What what can we do as an engineering practice? And and it always has to be it, it has to be some something we can deliver, something we can analyze, design, implement uh, that changes things, because I can't I, I can't invent a resiliency injection and just wish it to, to happen. You know, gee, I wish people were more resilient. Well, that isn't that is not an engineering solution. Uh, to achieving. Right. Okay. So I have a kind of a fun question here. I want you to imagine that you meet a complete stranger who claims that resiliency is central to their work. On pain of death, you're given one question to determine if that is indeed true. What would you ask? Yeah, pain of death. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I ask our interns a similar kinds of kind of high pressure kind of question like that. Yeah. Um, it's very good. I think the the question is going to have to be something like, what decision are you supporting? And it, it, they, they really should have a spectrum of them. They should have a big bag full of cognitive work at hand. If they can't answer that question, it indicates they, are, they do not have a decision-centered perspective on their, on their effort. So they, that would tell me they're building technology. They're building a data-centered system, a technology-centered system. It is not really a cognitive centered effort therefore it can't uh, it, it is not going to get there i like that i like that a lot so what what are you trying to how are you framing the problem kind of yeah yes and and, and I, I need that cognitive decision kind of word in there because they'll give you some framing they, they have some framing for for how they're thinking about the problem and how they're trying to engineer the solution but the the real you know sort of pain of death question is it a, is it a cognitive framing or is it a data framing, or is it a tech-centric framing? Um, and, and that's what you're trying to get to. And, and frankly, the if, if, if you ask me to guess, if, if we asked that question 100 times today, what would we get? Um, we'd probably get about 60% AIML, tech-centric framing. Uh, we'd probably get about 39% data science, big data, data, data framing. Um, and there's somewhere there's this outlying sort of 1% that would say something that sounded cognitive or decision. Yeah. But it sounds like the same kind of question you're asking not only your interns, but your prospective customers as well. Yes. To really, to really capture the, their incoming perspective. It, 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 so I, I joke, I joke with some of our, some of our senior engineers that to some degree, it's like, um, you, you feel like the, the guy that knows the winning lottery ticket number and nobody will listen. Uh, so you can you can see the the path that they're on. Uh, you can see the brittleness in the joint cognitive system concept that they're that they're attempting to implement, but you kind of can't stop them. They, they they're dedicated to it. Well, 
and that that really frustrated me it has always frustrated me for my whole career um and i if somebody has an idea on how to fix that i'm i'm looking for a <laughs> i'm looking for the cure to that one right another need for inoculation it sounds like <laughs> all right last question's uh, a bit of a fun one but uh i'm very curious to hear your answer to this since you have worked in uh, so many different domains. If you could instantly become an expert in anything, what would it be? Oh, that's interesting. Um, lately, I've been thinking a lot about sailing, and I, I've, I've only been on a sailboat just a handful of times in my life and have never personally sailed one. But just sort of the elegance of the physics and the the nuance of all that is 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 kind of is kind of fascinating to me. I, I'm not sure I'm not sure that's uh, the answer you're looking for, Brian, but it just seemed. It, it's just been in the back of my mind lately. That works. So this is something you haven't really done much of, but it, it obviously struck you as uh, interesting and, and something you, you, you could see yourself spending time developing expertise in. Yes. And, and a very different approach to, you know, put diesel fuel in the front, and, you know, and, and, and light mm -hmm. up a bunch of horsepower and, and go abuse the ocean. Uh, there's something about sailing that's more, maybe more JCS-like, you know, sort of at, at one with the forces as opposed to opposing them. Right. Well, JCS uh, seems to infuse everything you do, uh, and that's that is obvious in your work. And apparently, you want to make that in your play as well. So, um, so uh, I think that's inspirational as well. Um, all right. So, on that note, Bill, I want to thank you for speaking with us today. It really has been uh, a pleasure, and um, uh, we we will look forward to learning more about your uh, joint system that you're developing with uh, Texas A and M. That sounds like a really uh, really great direction. Um, and the, the, in, uh, as you mentioned, the experiential learning piece, it'll be really interesting to see how that uh, plays out. Well, great. I, I appreciate you having me and, and we should do this again soon. I, I don't get to talk to the two of you often enough. Right. Agreed. So on that note, uh, thanks again for joining us. And for the NDM podcast, I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Laura Militello. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. Thank mm -hmm. you.